This episode of Onward to Victory is brought to you by WCScreens.com. For wholesale pricing, nationwide shipping, exemplary service, check out my pal Tony and the rest of his team at WCScreens.com for the best in screen printing and embroidery. And on with the show. Today on Onward to Victory, we're going to talk about one of the finest fighting Irish teams ever. And they only banded together for a single game. They were, my friends, the Rockney All-Stars. Haven't heard of them? That's all right. The team formed a square off in a charity game two days after Christmas in 1930. And in what could have been a controversial move, the roster included one player who had just been kicked out of Notre Dame. And of course, sadly, just three months later, the team's namesake, Coach Rockney, was killed in a plane crash. Buckle up those chin straps, Irish fans. This is Onward to Victory. Hello, Irish fans, and welcome to Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. My name is Alex Painter, and I am your host. Regardless of where you're listening in from, I'm psyched you're here because I got an episode which happens to be the 60th in show history, which is being released on the 91st anniversary of the death of perhaps the best college football coach in history, and that is, of course, our very own Coach Knut Rockney. Today's offering is an interesting one. It's a little bit off the beaten path, which I suppose is how we kind of like it around here, but we're going to talk about the final team to have a formal association with the coach in just the last few months while he was living. And as I mentioned, there's even one controversial figure on the team who just happens to be a show favorite. So we're knocking out a lot of birds with one stone here, but the team did just form for one game. And I can't wait to get into this rarely told story. But first, I just got to tell you, you got to go back and check out the last episode called Grace and Gumption, the Chet Grant story about an absolute Notre Dame legend, Mr. Grant himself. And believe me, if you haven't heard of Chet or you just have a passing familiarity with him, this one is very much worth your time. And uh, don't forget, go over to onwardtovictory.blog, favorite it, bookmark it, do whatever you got to do to make sure you're making frequent stops over there. It's the show's new website where myself and new member of the team, Matt Gehring, will be releasing additional content for you frenzied fighting Irish fans. So to commemorate St. Patrick's Day, I just put up a short story about when, how, and why the most Irish of all holidays, St. Patrick's Day, was once banned on Notre Dame's campus. It's quite a story, and you should check it out again. It's at Onward to Victory. Dot blog, And I would be remiss not to mention that the website is presented by our good friends at wcscreens.com, whom you should also check out with any screen printing or embroidery needs. And since today is the anniversary of Coach Rockney's death, I would also be remiss not to mention, if you haven't already, go pick up one of two books, or possibly both if you're a completionist like me. The first is 
Rockne of Ages, and the second one is called As God's Witness. So the former, and they are both written by a gentleman named Jeff Harrell, who happens to be a good friend of the show. But uh, As God's Witness actually deals with the actual death of Coach Rockne, as does Rockne of Ages, but Rockne of Ages is a little bit more comprehensive. But if you haven't already, check these books out. I have to believe it is some of the very best scholarship about Coach Knute Rockney. No better time to plug it than on this particular date. But like I said, if you haven't already, go check them out. But before we launch into this episode like it's a tackling dummy, let me thank a few very important folks. And those are, of course, our consensus All-Americans who support the show monetarily and have kept the lights on for almost three years now. But in addition to our pals at WCScreens.com, I would like to give major props to the Consensus All-Americans, both past and present, who again have donated to the show. But the current Consensus All-Americans include Mr. Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana, and Will Fuller of Redondo Beach, California. Thank you all so much, and if you want to get your name called as a Consensus All-American yourself, feel free to visit the virtual tip jar one of which is at paypal.me slash onwardtovictory, and the other is at patreon.com slash onwardtovictorypodcast. So as far as context and content, I have to give the assist to our good friend, the aforementioned Will Fuller, who actually, I said he's from Redondo Beach, but he is actually just transitioning back into the Midwest, but he is, of course, the gentleman who wrote The Forever Year about the real-life romance and relationship between George Gipper and Iris Trapier. So, yeah, shameless plug for that one as well. Check that one out. It's fantastic. But he sent me an article from the Alumni Magazine about one of the games we're going to be discussing, which then kind of led me down the rabbit hole to discover the other one, which we will be profiling a bit deeper. So thank you for that. So without further ado, let's get underway with The Fighting Fundraising Irish, one game with Rockney's All-Stars, right after this. To set the stage, let's vault back to December of 1930. The season for the Notre Dame football team, which had wound down on December 6th with a 27-0 trouncing of USC, was a runaway success. This was true. One which saw a brand new 54,000-seat stadium open, an undefeated 10-0 record, and a claimed national championship. This, of course, followed the undefeated 1929 season as well. But famed Notre Dame head coach Knut Rockne was in absolute piss-poor shape. While he managed to coach the entire 10-game slate of the season, he was suffering from both sheer exhaustion and a bout of phlebitis, which actually attacked his mobility. He found himself coaching often during the season from a bed or a cot, or in a wheelchair. And this is not necessarily a good thing for the coach, a former player himself, who often partook in the drills with his boys. But undoubtedly, one of the biggest trials of the 1930 season for Rockney, which would have, had he had hair, caused him to lose a lot of it, was the expulsion of his star fullback, Joe Savoldi, 
who would later garner the nickname Jumping Joe. And it was Jumping Joe who had actually scored the first Irish touchdown in the new stadium. So what was his offense? Well, not only had he quietly married his girlfriend, Audrey Kohler, a local South Bend resident, in 1929, they were actually trying to quietly annul their marriage halfway through the 1930 season. Once the Notre Dame administration caught wind of it, they were uh, none too impressed. Though there was no rule against students being married, divorce was out of the question, and it still kind of remains a bit of a taboo in Catholicism even today. So they probably also weren't thrilled that Audrey was also a Protestant, but that's just my guess. So the former All-American was expelled, an incident that could not have been easy on his coach. So after the 1930 season had concluded, Rock had a resolve to kind of take it easy. And actually taking it easy was part of the doctor's orders. And later in December, he actually checked into the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. So as a quick side story to this, many don't realize it, but when Rock went to the clinic, he brought a senior offensive tackle with him who had actually hid the severity of his knee injuries the season before, named Frank Leahy. So Rock and Leahy spent hour after hour talking football. And they had, you know, parallel beds. But Rock soon learned that Leahy wanted to badly become a college football coach. But Leahy feared that a limited college playing career due to his knee injuries may have precluded him from breaking into the ranks. Rock was always impressed with Leahy's passion and his toughness and the fact that he craved discipline and, of course, winning football. But every year, the head coach fielded tons of letters asking him for recommendations for assistant coaches. And he just happened to have several such letters with him at the Mayo Clinic. So again, since their hospital beds were side by side, he actually handed Leahy the stack of offers and told him to take his pick. So Leahy picked offensive line coach at Georgetown University and thus began the college coaching career of Frank Leahy. But anyway, after 1929 and 1930, Rockney, as the best football coach in the land, was probably close to his peak marketability as an individual. His endorsements, public appearances, and nationwide speaking engagements had grown so lucrative that Rock actually hired a man named Christy Walsh, who is widely regarded as the first sports agent in history, to help him handle his affairs. So Walsh had some famous clients who were athletes or in the realm of athletics, and that included Babe Ruth, who was probably the most famous man in America. So that being said, Rockney also realized that he could lend his name to more altruistic and philanthropic causes as well. So on December 14th, 1930, he coached a team called the Notre Dame All-Stars, which featured all four Four Horsemen, center Adam Walsh and other famous Notre Dame football playing alum from the mid-1920s, and also a few who had just finished their senior seasons. But just who were these Notre Dame All-Stars squaring off against? 
the New York Giants of the National Football League. The Giants had actually posted a 13-4 mark during the 1930 season and were widely regarded as the best professional football team in America. And the Giants were led by player-coach, Michigan product future Pro Football Hall of Famer, Benny Friedman. But as far as big stages are concerned, the game would be played at one of the biggest in the country for sporting events, and that's at Polo Grounds. And all the proceeds would benefit the unemployed of New York City, a city still, of course, ravaged by the effects of the Great Depression. But think about this. What a stroke of genius on the part of Coach Rockney. Most know that he was a master promoter and was always thinking big picture. This is really what put him just heads above most of his peers during this time. So not only would the game increase his and his program's profile in what was easily the largest city in America, but they were doing it for a good cause. Again, scoring even more points in the court of public sentiment. And it surely also wouldn't hurt their recruiting efforts on the East Coast either. Rockney tried to make Notre Dame a national presence and actually employed agents, kind of like recruiters in a sense, all over the country to tip him off to good players that he should be recruiting. But sometimes fans wonder aloud why the fan base of Notre Dame is so widespread. But it's really because of moves like this that have proven to have a ripple effect through generations. And it was moves like this during the first few decades of the 20th century that allowed the brand to spread like fire. But according to the New York Times, over 50,000 fans turned out for the exhibition contest and raised over $115,000 for the unemployed. But the old collegian heroes didn't stand a chance against the professionals, and the Giants won the game 22-0. And truthfully, the game wasn't even as close as the lopsided score indicated. Rockney reputedly said after the game, quote, This was the greatest football machine I ever saw. I'm glad none of you got hurt, end quote. <laughs> but this is from the Alumni Magazine article by Clayton Truder. This is from the one that Will forwarded over to me. It says, quote, The charity game raised more than $115,000 worth close to $2 million in 2021 dollars. The smashing box office success proved to be Knut Rockne and the Four Horsemen's final victory together. End quote. What feels even crazier is that this would prove to be the final game that Rockne ever coached. This exhibition game against a pro football team where he enlisted the help of many of his stars from the yesteryear, including the famous Four Horsemen. But this particular game does indeed get quite a bit of press for that exact reason, and it was actually listed among the top Notre Dame moments when they did their top 125 football moments to commemorate the 125th anniversary of the program back in 2013. So while this game is huge and a huge part of the overall story, this idea of the fighting fundraising Irish, this obviously isn't going to be the only game that we're discussing. So to quickly recap, that exhibition game with the Giants was on December 14th, 
just eight days after the season ended at USC. Rockney then hopped on a train to Minnesota a couple days later to the Mayo Clinic again for extreme fatigue and to help treat his phlebitis, as we had discussed. And that's, of course, where all the conversations happened with Leahy. But despite being laid up in the clinic, Rockney wasn't finished with his philanthropic endeavors, for he had already planned another exhibition game. So his men had already done New York. Well, why not uh, Los Angeles then, Rockney reasoned. And why not play these kind of barnstorming exhibition games in two of the largest football cities in the entire country? This is the game that, out of the two, flies under the radar almost exclusively. So a second game was scheduled on December 27th, and would be played at the Los Angeles Coliseum, the home, of course, of USC. The second game would be a benefit for Elks Lodge number 99, who, of course, would have been involved in a number of charitable endeavors in the local Los Angeles area. But it does make me wonder if that Elks Lodge is still in existence. But the game, though absolutely an altruistic venture, if you will, was again, no doubt, was meant to help expand the Notre Dame brand and continue to grant tons of positive exposure to the program. It does make one wonder just how they pulled it off, though, with current college students. I mean, these guys had to have been compensated somehow, right? And while the rules of the amateur game would become, let's call it, a little bit more robust a little bit later on in history, we do know that there were still some rules in place to safeguard the amateur status of college athletes. But what was the main issue? Well, the main issue was that Rockney would certainly not be there due to his health issues. He was still in the Mayo Clinic. So in his stead, Rock dispatched one of his favorite former players turned line coaches in Hunk Anderson to coach the team. Hunk was also famously George Gipp, yes, the Gipper himself's best friend. So the fact that Rock would not coach the team himself is probably one of the reasons that the game itself does not receive much ink. Whereas the team was exclusively called the Notre Dame All-Stars for its game against the football-playing Giants, this team, despite not having Rock himself on the sidelines as coach, was called the Rockney All-Stars. Perhaps a bit of smoke and mirrors gambit, who knows? But whereas the, again, the exhibition bout against the Giants featured some program celebrities who maybe hadn't played football in a few years, the Rockney All-Stars wouldn't roster such a team. It's hard to say how Rockney felt about the team's performance against the Giants, but for the West Coast fundraiser, Rockney and Hunk Anderson opted for a roster full of star players from the Notre Dame National Championship teams from 1929 and 1930. Though it didn't have the star power of, say, well, the four horsemen, it was a team full of ringers. So featured on the so featured on the Rockney All-Stars were several members of the 1930 team who again had just finished off their undefeated season. And those guys were left end John Tex O'Brien, right guard and All-American Burt Metzger, right tackle Art McManon, right end George Velk, and under center was quarterback and two-time All-American 
Frank Caradeo. And All-American Marty Brill was one of his halfbacks. And to supplement those members of the 1930 team were a quartet of starters and seniors from the 1929 team, including a bona fide star and former All-American center, Tim Moynihan. Tim had actually coached at Georgetown University that previous season and was, at least if pictures were any indication, uh, still in impeccable physical condition. But you also had seniors and All-Americans in left tackle Ted Toomey and Jack Cannon, who played left guard. And then Jack Elder, though he wasn't an All-American in football, he did hold two school records on the track and field team in sprint events. And I'm not quite sure how this move was met. And we will never know, I suppose. But slated to start at fullback was... 1930 All-American Jumping Joe Savoldi. Yes, indeed. We have gone full circle here with the former star fullback who was expelled from Notre Dame just the month before. Now, let's talk about a busy month here for Jumping Joe. So he was expelled from Notre Dame in mid-November, and he was quickly scooped up by Papa Bear himself, George Hallis, and the Chicago Bears. And by signing Savoldi, they broke what was known as the Grange Rule, where you couldn't sign players to professional contracts before their senior years in college were over. And that was, of course, named for the famous Red Grange. But Papa Bear didn't care. And Jumping Joe joined the Bears and helped them win their final three games of the 1930 season. And even spurred the team to an upset victory over Curly Lambeau's Green Bay Packers on December 7th. And Hallis literally paid one, a $1,000 fine each week he had Savoldi on the team for breaking the Grange rule. And Hallis had only signed Joe after he and Curley, who Curley was of course himself a Notre Dame man, agreed not to touch the prospect. So Curley was furious over it. So after his short professional football stint was over, here he was suiting up for a de facto Notre Dame team just one month after the school had expelled him for attempting to annul his marriage. Whew! But again, he managed to sandwich in a stint with Hallis's Bears in there for good measure. So, by the way, uh, Savaldi actually lived an exceptional and incredibly interesting and dynamic life. I mentioned earlier that Savaldi is a show favorite. If you go way back to episode 11 of the show, literally 49 episodes ago, released back in November of 2019, that entire thing was about Savoldi. so a shameless plug for that. But why was everybody wanting his services so badly? In short, imagine the biggest and strongest player on the entire football field lining up at fullback. That's why. Joe stood almost six feet feet and tipped the scales right around 200 for his senior season. For college football at the time, that's a big guy. And for a bit of critical context, All-American guard and teammate Burt Metzger was 5 foot 8 and 155 pounds. I guess one might say the game was a bit different back then. So the Rockney All-Stars, without Rockney, with the best of two national championship teams, including the formerly disgraced Savaldi in tow, head to California to play their charity game. But who was their opponent? Well, it was a team known as the West-South All-Stars, 
and they were under the direction of former Purdue head coach James Phelan. Phelan was the current head coach for the Huskies of the University of Washington at that time. But who comprised Phelan's team? Well, it was certainly headlined by a gentleman named Russ Saunders. Now, if you're thinking Russ Saunders, that name doesn't mean much to me, or doesn't ring a bell, no worries, but he was an All-American himself for USC in 1930, so again, that exact season, and he would eventually be a member of the 1931 Green Bay Packers, who won an NFL championship. And, not for nothing, get a load of this. He was actually one of the models for the famous Tommy Trojan statue on USC's campus. Now, I know we hate USC, but that's still pretty fun. Saunders also enjoyed a long career in Hollywood, starring in 85 films opposite of the likes of John Wayne, Humphrey Bogart, and Cary Grant. So others on Phelan's team was his old halfback from Purdue, yet another former All-American named Cotton Wilcox, and another Purdue back named Ralph Welch, who would eventually replace Phelan as head coach of the Huskies in 1941, also suited up. The game had a 1.30 start time for that Saturday, December 27th. The Coliseum actually swelled with about 40,000 football-loving spectators to take in the exhibition game. And for Rockney All-Stars fullback Joe Savaldi, it was poetic justice. The newspaper reported that, quote, before some spectators were settled in their seats... The Rockney All-Stars had already scored twice, end quote. Wouldn't you know it, both of them were from Savoldi. To say the former Irish and Bears star tore through the line all day, well, that'd be a bit of an understatement. On a day where the beleaguered fullback's divorce was reportedly being finalized and was making national headlines, Savoldi ran the ball 14 times for 157 yards. So yes, 11.2 yards per carry. I don't know, perhaps he was running angry. But he scored two touchdowns in the first quarter and then a third in the fourth quarter. Halfback Jack Elder joined him in going over the century mark with 106 yards on 11 carries. Now, quarterback Frank Caradeo completed three passes for 48 yards, which I guess makes sense. They didn't have to pass very much with the running backs doing what they were doing. And, of course, that line play also garnered particular praise. The day after the contest, the Los Angeles Times noted that, quote, Although Mr. Rockney was not here in person, he had a first-class personal representative on hand in the person of Hunk Anderson, his chief assistant this year. All Hunk had to do was sit on the sidelines and pull the strings, directing one of the greatest all-star outfits that ever tramped any football field. End quote. The final score was Rockney All-Stars 20, West South All-Stars 7. Though Rockney had coached his final game a few weeks before, this would be the final football contest that would be associated with the coach while he was living. Rockney died on March 31st, 1931, just a little over three months to the day after the Rockney All-Stars all players who undoubtedly admired their old coach and served under his tutelage for their entire college careers, took the field on his behalf. I suppose in some senses he was appropriately 
replaced at head coach by Hunk Anderson that next season. Jumping Joe Savaldi enjoyed a long career as a professional wrestler before joining the Office of Strategic Services as an undercover agent in Italy during World War II. Yes, you heard that correctly. That actually happened. So go give episode 11 a listen if you can. But I hope you enjoyed that not often told tale of those exhibition games after the 1930 season. And I'll be right back. Hope you enjoyed that not often told tale of the, I guess, philanthropic side of the Rockney era. But it's so much more than just raising money for a good cause, even though, of course, that is an incredibly noble pursuit. But, like, truly, when you really do stop and think, and you're like, why is Notre Dame football, this small, scrappy Catholic university located in northern Indiana, just why is it then, and still is today, so relevant? Such a college football powerhouse. It's really because of these events that happened, you know, the better part of a century ago. That's really what put all of these things in motion. And that is straight from the brain. These are all the brainchild of Coach Canute Rockney, who, again, as of the release of this episode, passed away very suddenly and very tragically 91 years ago today. And I really meant what I said at the beginning of the show, is if you really want to commemorate the life of Knut Rockne, you really want to study it and really want to discover what his thoughts were, what made him tick, and then ultimately also an intriguing angle on what may have ended his life prematurely, then you really should pick up Jeff's books, okay? The first one is called As God's Witness, The Death of Knut Rockne, which focuses solely on just that, the death of Knut Rockne and the mob bomb theory. So there is that. But then there's also Rockne of Ages, which includes the contents of As God's Witness and so much more. So that's kind of the Rockne anthology, if there ever was one. And if it sounds like a bit of a shameless plug for these books, then I guess perhaps it is, as Jeff is a good friend of mine and a good friend of the show, but I've read his books and I've studied his books and I've looked at them incredibly critically as someone who absorbs as much Notre Dame knowledge as possible. And again, if you are interested in immersing yourself in the life of Knut Rockne, then there is probably very few better places you can go. And also, let's talk about that really quick, since this seems like an appropriate day to broach this topic. His name was, in fact, Knut Rockne, with a hard K, Knut. And that is actually something that Jeff mentions in both of his books. He gives the phonetic spelling, but uh, which I appreciated, because sometimes I feel like I'm on an island when I say Knut Rockne. But that is how his name was pronounced. And... I guess the Americanized version, or the overly Americanized version, I should say, of his name is a, not just a soft K, but a silent K, Newt, as in like a small lizard. But that was, in fact, not his name. And you can corroborate that uh, not only from period newsreels, but also his wife. Uh, his wife, Bonnie, was actually asked by Ronald Reagan, 
who was, of course, starred as George Gipp in the movie Canute Rockne All-American, where Pat O'Brien plays Canute himself. But Reagan went on the record saying he asked Canute's widow, Bonnie, is it a soft, silent K or is it a hard K? And she said, it's Canute. It's Canute. Americans have adopted the name and just started calling him Newt, which is not true. So not only is, again, the period newsreels of the time will tell you Canute, but also his widow. So not to say we should start a movement, but there are a lot of Newt Rockneys out there. And I hear it all the time on the NBC telecasts in the fall when they talk about Coach Rockney. And it not saying it full-fledged drives me nuts, but it's just not the way that his name was pronounced. So again, our guy is named Canute Rockney. And I guess I'm trying to clear the air very gently because I don't care for controversy. But again, I grew up in a family and I was the second oldest of 10 kids, so I was constantly called the wrong name. So I guess in essence, I'd hate to get the most prolific coach in Notre Dame history's name pronounced incorrectly. All right. Well, anyways, so what's coming down the pike for the show here? Well, we are going to be doing some coverage of the blue and gold game, which Matt and I are both very, very excited about. We got some really neat things planned. So be sure to stay tuned for that. We will probably be doing an episode of some kind about our observances of the blue and gold game. So again, make sure you're subscribed to the show, whether it's that purple podcast icon on your iPhone or if you listen on Amazon Audible or Podbean or CastBox or Spotify. Honestly, however it is that you digest your podcast, we're going to be there. But just keep a lookout for it because we're really excited. This is kind of, we're turning a new page, if you will, in the show's history. And we're still, as you can see, offering plenty of podcast material, but we are supplementing it with the website. So tune in to both if you can. So not only do we have a blue and gold episode planned, I have been asked by a close friend of the show, that is of course Tony Strand from WCScreens.com, that maybe we should do a little bit of investigation now that we are 10 years past the Manti Teo girlfriend hoax saga. And I think some people really wanted to put this Manti Teo whole situation there from the 2012 season into like this very simple little box and just kind of pack it away and, and call it a day. But there are so many more layers to this than many folks realize. So I do plan on doing a blow-by-blow narrative storytelling session of that Manti Teo situation because, um, of course, he had one of the absolute best seasons from a defender that we have seen in quite some time. I mean, that 2012 Manti Teo season was nothing short of magical. But he, of course, had all this stuff going on off the football field that we didn't know about until we knew about it. And then once we knew about it, people started picking at it. And then once people started picking at it, all of a sudden it was a story. And, of course, it ran parallel right alongside of his march to a Heisman Trophy. So it is incredibly interesting stuff. So I will actually be uh, doing a bit of an episode about that. And I'm really, really excited about it because, man, while the events of that episode happened long ago, long enough ago, I should say that they're kind of starting to erode from your natural memory, it, it still happened recently enough that once we dig into it, once uh, I start sharing some of these details, it's going to take you right back 10 years ago to 2012. And believe that, it's going to happen. So that is also coming down the pike and something that 
that I am really, really excited for. So stay tuned. But with that, I better let you all go. I really hope you enjoyed this particular offering of Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. I'd like to thank the consensus All-Americans, those stalwarts, Michael Finan, Brad Glazier, and Will Fuller, as well as our friends at wcscreens.com. We couldn't do it without the support of all of you, and plus all of you who are taking the time to listen and share these episodes. I hope you enjoy them, and hey, football season is going to be here before we know it. So thank you all very much. If you'd like to support the show, head over to paypal.me slash onward to victory or patreon.com slash onward to victory podcast. Become a consensus All-American yourself. And I'd also like to thank, since I'm giving out thank yous, Joseph Rakish, whose song Knut Rockney serves as the theme song to this humble show. Thank you very much. If you heard the theme song and this is your first time here, or maybe it's not your first time here, and you're like, where can I get that song? The song's called Knut Rockney. It's by Joseph Rakish, and you can find it anywhere you go and listen to your music, whether that be Apple Music, YouTube, Spotify, SoundCloud, you name it. So thanks, Joseph. I appreciate it as always. And with that, I think I am going to sign off. This has been Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. Hard to believe, but episode number 60. And in kindness, I am your host, Alex Painter. And as always, go Irish. Irish.